0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the occasion of the fifth Short Brothers Commemorative Lecture to be given by Captain J.C. Kelly Rogers. Now tonight is a very special occasion because it is not only the Short Brothers Commemorative Lecture, it is also a main society lecture. So we are very proud tonight to welcome our president, Mr. A. H. Gardner, and the secretary, Dr. Ballantyne. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I will ask the president of the Royal Aeronautical Society if he would take the chair and conduct the meeting. Your president.
1: Steve Lucas, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, David, for that very kind introduction. It's a pleasure to come to Northern Ireland, and I must confess that this is my first visit. And I've already seen enough to realize how fortunate the people who live and work here are. It's my very pleasant duty to introduce your lecturer, although from what I know of Captain Kelly Rogers, I'm sure he needs very little introduction in Northern Ireland. Nevertheless, I propose to go through with a formal introduction for the sake of those who may not know all the facts that are me on this piece of paper. Uh, Captain John Kelly Rogers is the Deputy General Manager of Air Lingus. He has been with Air Lingus for many years, and in fact since he became Technical Manager of that company to many in the aircraft business, he is in fact Air Lingus. He was born at Dunleary in Dublin, and educated at Congo's Wood College Island, and then in HMS Conway. From 1919 to 1927, he served in the r and and the Merchant Navy, and then in 1927 joined the RAF. He entered the Civil Aviation uh, with Imperial Airways, and later BOAC. In 1939, he commanded the first scheduled transatlantic mail flight operated by that company. And in the following year, inaugurated its first transatlantic passenger flight. In 1941, he was awarded the OBE for his work in salvaging a long-range flying boat stranded in the Belgian Congo and for his contribution to the development of civil aviation. He was associated with the opening of the flying boat base at Poynes, and after the outbreak of the Second World War, as the chief pilot of the BRC Transatlantic Service, he was a regular visitor there until the end of hostilities. Among the celebrities he flew across the Atlantic was the Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill, and I'm sure he will mention this in his talk this evening. In 1945, he became, as I mentioned before, a technical manager of various seas of the Atlantic region, and in 47, he joined Aer Lingus. Since then, he has been a well-known figure in civil aviation. He's been chairman of the technical committee of IATA. He was elected a fellow of this society in 1955, and in 1958, he became a liveryman of the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. With the greatest pleasure I introduce Captain Kelly Lodges, who will give you his paper on the Atlantic Flying boat 25 years ago.
2: We have a wealth of presidents here tonight, so I'll start by saying President of the Society, President of the Branch, ladies and gentlemen. During this year, we passed the 25th anniversary of the commencement of scheduled flying between the old and the new worlds. It was in the summer of 1939 it commenced, and it is of the part played by British Civil Aviation in its establishment, about which I shall principally be speaking. It will be necessary to refer to happenings and people involved before and after the event, as well as those concerned at the time. Memory must be relied upon to a great extent, and I therefore hope I'll be forgiven for any errors or omissions. Uh, And by the way, it's a coincidence that the first and only other occasion on which I have addressed a branch of the Society was also during 1939, when I read a paper to the Rochester branch, and the subject was Two Years of Short Empire Flying Boat Operations. As early as 1931, The draft of a tripartite agreement between Imperial Airways, Aeropostale, and Pan American Airways for the operation of a service from England to Canada by an Arctic route was under consideration. Nothing came of this, and in June 1935, Imperial Airways, BOAC's predecessor, presented a memorandum on transatlantic air services to the Air Ministry of the United Kingdom. In it, attention was drawn to the assistance being given to civil aviation by the U.S. government and its announced intention to lead the world in aeronautical development. It drew attention to the subsidies being paid through the United States Post Office, which, in the fiscal year of 1933, amounted to four and three-quarter million pounds and for the seven years, from 27 to 33 inclusive, amounted in total to 25 million pounds. The memorandum went into exhaustive detail and concluded that the solution of the Atlantic problem for Britain would be best advanced by the following. A. Concentrating attention on two routes, one via Newfoundland and the other via the Azores and Bermuda. B. Endeavouring to secure development in closer collaboration with Pan-American Airways. C. Developing aircraft similar to those produced in America a more advanced design and larger, as well as use of the composite aircraft, D, developing the heavy oil engine, E, the immediate adoption of a program of meteorological and radial research. It went on to suggest that Imperial Airways and Pan American appear to be in a position to operate experimental services with comparable aircraft during 1936 and also that the short mail composite aircraft would be due for delivery in nineteen thirty seven. In the light of what we're doing today, it is interesting to note this quotation from that Imperial Airways memorandum. And I quote High altitude flying appears to present most, if not all, of the problems of normal altitude flying, but also a series of additional problems of its own. In the present state of knowledge, it appears unsuitable for passenger carrying. In these circumstances, concentration on the problems of normal altitude flying would appear at present to offer better prospects for the solution of the Atlantic problem than on high-altitude flying. Unquote. Survey flights in conjunction with Pan American began in July 1937 with a simultaneous crossing by two flying boats, Caledonia, a modified version of the short Empire class, heading westwards from Southampton to New York, via Poins, Boswood in Newfoundland, and Montreal, and Clipper 3, a Sikorsky S-42, of Pan American, on the Eastward front. Early in the morning of July the 6, Caledonia, under the command of Captain A.S. Wilcoxon, and Clipper 3, Captain Harold Gray, passed each other over Mid-Atlantic. Cambria, a sister ship of Caledonia, also conducted survey flights at this time under the command of Captain Griffith Powell. The series concluded in the autumn, having thoroughly tested the meteorological and communications services together with such aids to navigation as existed. It is interesting to note a comment at that time by Colonel Charles Russell in his magazine Aviation, published in Dublin. Quote, Those of us who have to make journeys by bus know what a horribly uncomfortable experience it is due to the slowness of our bus service. This is precisely the big disadvantage of air travel today, and is particularly so in the case of regular Atlantic services. Imagine the ordinary type of fellow who is a potential Atlantic air traveler sitting in the Caledonia or the Clipper for 15 or 16 hours over the Atlantic. It's an impossible thought. As with bus services, so with air services. Frequency of service and speed, and still more speed, is the end to be sought. What we need is the creation of a bus service, say, hourly, between the old and the new worlds, at 600 miles an hour, unquote. Now those were prophetic words, and I'm very glad that Colonel Russell lived to see them come true. Also in 1937, the German Deutschlandser, conducted a series of 14 survey flights over the North Atlantic operating to New York via Lisbon, the Azores, and a catapult depot ship stationed between the Azores and New York. The aircraft were four-engine Blom and Voss seaplanes. Later, in August 1938, the, the Deutsche Lufthansa introduced the Fokker Wolf condor four-engine land plane and flew from Berlin to New York non-stop in 25 hours, the return journey taking 20 hours. Difficulty in negotiating agreement with the United States prevented the establishment of a scheduled German service at this time. In fact, due to the fortunes of war, it was to be many years before a scheduled German service became established on the North Atlantic. There had, of course, been the German Zeppelin Company, which, since 1932, had been flying the South Atlantic, and set out to establish scheduled service on the North Atlantic with its Hindenburg in 1937. With a crew of 55, this airship was fitted to carry 72 passengers. However, this service and the future of the airship as a commercial carrier were terminated at the end of Hindenburg's maiden voyage on the 6th of May, 1937, when it exploded on making contact with the mooring mast at Lakehurst, New Jersey with the loss of 35 lives. Another North Atlantic aspirant was Air France, which in 1937 allied itself with the French line to form Air France Transatlantique. Some survey flights were carried out using La 521 flying boats, but scheduled service was not achieved until after the war. By 1938, the composite aircraft Designed by Major Mayo, Assistant General Manager Technical of Imperial Airways, incomplete. Built by Short Brothers of Rochester, it consisted of a lower component. That was the lower component, and uh, you'll see it closely resembled the Empire Flying Boat, uh, except that uh, the the chine was obviously enlarged and the flare on the bow considerably greater, and. Uh, uh obviously with the intention of sustaining the heavier load to be carried when the seaplane uh, was um, fitted above. and this modified c-class flying boat had an upper component comprising of four mm. engines which for takeoff was mounted on top of the flying boat and subsequently released at a suitable operating altitude. There you see the two assembled together. The combined power of the two four engine units made it possible for the upper component, to be put into the air with a load which would be quite incapable of taking off the water by itself. This enabled the seaplane Mercury to achieve a range of about 3,000 miles, carrying a 1,000 pounds of load and using only a total rate of horsepower of about 1,500. On July 20, 1938, the composite aircraft took off from Foynes with uh, Captain Wilcoxon commanding the lower component and Captain Don Bennett, the upper. Uh, You'll see the crew there. you have Captain Frost on the extreme left, who was co-pilot of Captain Wilcoxon, the lower component. Radio Officer Costa next, then Captain Wilcoxon, and then Don Bennett, who was Captain... i uh, sorry, Radio Officer Costa was the sole crew uh, possessed by Captain Bennett in flying the top half. He is on the, the right, and then Major Bob Mayo is on the extreme right. Captain Bennett will be remembered as the man who subsequently uh, became the founder of the Pathfinders and wound up the war as Air Vice Marshal DCT Bennett. After separation, Bennett, with Radio Officer Coster, his crew, flew 2,900 miles non-stop to Montreal, carrying 1,000 pounds of films, photographs, and newspapers, the first commercial load to be carried by air across the North Atlantic. After refueling, he flew on to New York, completing the journey from Pointe in the elapsed time of 32 hours and 21 minutes. Later he returned to Britain via the Azores, And uh, in October 1938, he established a world-long-distance record for seaplanes by flying Mercury from Dundee in Scotland to a point on the Orange River in South Africa, a distance of 6,045 miles. The composite aircraft was not developed any further, and the lower component was ultimately lost by enemy action while moored in Poole Harbor early in the last war. The upper component was taken over by the RAF soon after the outbreak of war, and its ultimate fate is unknown to me. Meanwhile, preparations for the establishment of a transatlantic service in 1939 were proceeding. Flying boats would be used, and during the summer, the route would be from Southampton, Imperial Airways Base in the south of England, via Poynes in Ireland, Port Botwood in Newfoundland, Boucherville near Montreal, the Pan-American's terminal at Port Washington in Long Island, New York. Though flying boats were selected to commence the service, subsequent use of land planes was also envisaged. This is why Hattie's Camp, later known as Newfoundland Airport, and later still as Gander, was built to be the Western Oceanic Terminal in association with Botwood not far away. Prevailing winds and weather made a selection of the Eastern Oceanic Terminal very important in view of the limited performance of aircraft of the day. A joint survey undertaken by the Irish Army Air Corps and the British Air Ministry during 1935 and 36 resulted in the selection of a site in County Clare on the banks of the Shannon at its junction with the River Fergus, 15 miles from Limerick. It was on the land called Kilconry at a point named Rynanna, the marshy point. The better known today as Shannon <coughs> Airport. This selection was endorsed by an eminent group of inspectors who arrived in Ireland on November 19, the 1936. They were Colonel Lindbergh, Juan Tripp, then President of Pan American and now Chairman of the Board, John Cooper of Pan American, and the late George Woods Humphrey, Managing Director of Imperial Airways. Work on the construction of an aerodrome commenced almost simultaneously and it was planned to build a flying boat harbour beside it. Until this was ready, it was decided to use the port of Points on the opposite bank of the river. Plans for route development were in progress at the same time, and an agreement was reached between Britain, Canada, the Irish Free State, and Newfoundland at a conference held in Ottawa during November 1935. This envisaged the establishment of mail and passenger services across the Atlantic, at a minimum schedule of two flights a week in each direction. The more interesting points of agreement were, one, the establishment of a joint operating company incorporated at the instance of three companies, one of which would be nominated by the United Kingdom, Irish and Canadian governments. The board of directors were to be nine in number, of whom three, including the chairman and managing director, were to be nominated by the UK company together with three each by the Canadian and Irish companies the UK company would hold 51% of the stock and the other two 24.5% each the payment of annual subsidy to be in the proportions of 20% by Canada 5% by the Irish Free State and a sum to be agreed in the case of Newfoundland better still uh, with the balance being provided by the UK still better In return for landing facilities to be granted to the joint company by the U.S. government, Pan American would be granted landing facilities by the UK, Irish, Canadian, and Newfoundland governments. (coughs) At that time, Newfoundland was a self-governing dominion. Pan American would participate on the basis of reciprocity with the joint company in the operation of the services. Finally, in the operation of the services, preference would be given to the direct route via Ireland, Newfoundland, and Canada, though it was considered that during an initial period, services might have to operate via Bermuda during the winter months. For the time being, the UK's nominee, Imperial Airways, Atlantic Limited, was the instrument chosen by the joint company to commence operations. The advent of war in 1939, and the later withdrawal of the Canadian nominee, Trans-Canada Airlines, effectively prevented the consortium ever assuming any recognisable form. However, one recognisable relic remains in the form of the Irish nominee, Arianta, which does not operate aircraft, but owns the shares of the two Irish <coughs> operating companies, Aer Lingus and Aer It was formed on the 5th of April 1937 to implement the Ottawa Agreement, almost a year after Aer commenced operations. <coughs> a case of the parent being born after the child. Imperial Airways' preparation for the establishment of a regular service in 1939 included the ordering of new modified Empire-class short flying boats fitted with Bristol-Perseus 12C sleeve valve engines instead of the Pegasus 10C poppet valve. Four were ordered for the transatlantic and the United States to Bermuda service, cabot, Caribou Connemara and Plyde three were also supplied for service across the Tasman Sea Aotearoa Australia and Avarua. cylinder Perseus delivered 890 BHP at takeoff and cruised at 550 it was a nice uh, clean engine to begin with but became cluttered later as all those engines seemed to do when they reached the limit of their development With its lower frontal area and improved cowling, it was claimed to give a lower specific consumption at any given speed when compared with the more powerful Pegasus. Modifications to the aircraft (coughs) included included strengthening the wings and hulls so that an increase of gross weight of 5,500 pounds to 46,000 pounds was permitted. Cabot and Caribou, designated for transatlantic operations, were further modified to permit a (coughs) take-off weight of 50,500 pounds and fly at 53,000 pounds after fueling in the air. Here it is interesting to note that without any change in appearance, the gross weight of the Empire boat had been boosted by 12,500 pounds, an increase of 23,500 percent. The sleeve valve engine had only seen serviced previously, in the R.A.F.'s Westland Lysander and civil certification required the satisfactory outcome of 400 hours in the air under conditions similar to those in which it would be used. Cabot, the first Atlantic boat, was launched on the 2nd of December 1938 and went straight into flight refueling development trials at the Marine Aircraft Experimental Establishment Felixstowe. Connemara was selected to do the 400-hour engine test And having been told to get on with it, I started on the 31st of March 1939. To get in time, we flew all over the northwest Europe and beyond as far as the Faroes, gradually increasing our daily targets until we were doing as many as 14 hours in the day. This made it apparent that the aircraft was capable of more than the crew, and Captain Gordon's store doubled up with another crew. Everything went fine until the 19th of 1939 when Connemara caught fire while refueling at Southampton and became a burnt-out wreck in a very few minutes with the sad loss of one of the refueler's crew members. That was all that remained of Connemara when she was dragged up, the wreckage was dragged up on the slipway, and I don't expect you to recognize them, but that man standing on the right uh, showing some signs of anguish uh, was known to some of you anyway, that was Lamp's, Captain Lamp Blue, the British Aviation Insurance Company. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
2: this was a serious blow, particularly as the Americans were ready to go. Instead of beefing up their 1937 aircraft, like Imperial Airways had done, they had designed and built an entirely new type, a bigger further ranging and faster, therefore capable of carrying passengers as well as mail. It was a Boeing 314, then and for some years the largest aircraft in the world. That's an interesting picture of the prototype because uh, all subsequently had the triple tail. That's the first one with a single tail. And I afterwards talked to the man who flew that and he was... Very uh, bad to get it down on Lake Washington without breaking it up because uh, they found that they had no, um, uh, you know, sort of lateral. Sub- well, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, but any of you that are designers here uh, would realize the results of having too, l- too little to steer by. There now, it grossed eighty-two and a half thousand pounds. That shows you the production airplane, and you can see. Something of the triple tail. Um, I should mention also <coughs> that the fine good men will be interested in this uh, that that was a photograph used extensively by Pan American when they produced this, this this airplane for publicity purposes because it's a magnificent picture showing the airplane apparently leaping off the water, dying to get into the air, and in fact it's doing a colossal bounce. Damn, really wretched. <laughs> and all because the, the main step was in the wrong position. And the, uh, the main step, in fact, had to be moved about 14 inches, I forget which way now, uh, in order to get the <coughs> foreign stability on the water at all. <coughs> it
3: goes
2: 82,500 pounds and had a range of four and a quarter thousand miles. It was fitted with seating for 74 passengers <coughs> in apartments, And uh, that was Compartment D, the dining (coughs) compartment. Um, That was in the center section area. Seventy-four passengers in eight compartments could sleep 40, though it was only expected that about 40% of the latter number were carried on North Atlantic flights. By the way, mention of passengers reminds me that the airfares filed at this time uh, by Pan American for travel between London and New York were $375 single, and $675 a turn. A round trip excursion fare on the same route today costs about $335, half the price charged 25 years ago. The luxurious furnishings of the Boeing 314 contrasted strangely with the interiors of cabos and caribou, which had been gutted to save weight. That's a view looking out, and that's a view from that same position looking forward. And uh, that was what the interior uh, looked like, and these aircraft in which we first flew the Atlantic. They contrasted strangely with those, the, 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 the Americans contrasted strangely with those um, interiors because, um, for instance, a staircase led from the passenger deck up to the spacious carpeted flight deck, incidentally much like what I saw in the Belfast today, with its well-appointed accommodation for pilots, navigator, flight engineer and radio operator um, that is the, the, the pilot's position uh, there was the flight engineer's position whether it is killing something or putting in fuel or what I don't know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is a general view of the, of the cockpit showing its spaciousness with the navigator on the left uh, the um, radio uh, operator on the right the pilot's right forward and the flight engineer would be just behind you on the right. The assembly of uh, hull, wings, and engines followed the short design, but lateral stability on the water was obtained by the use of sponsons or sea wings instead of wingtip floats. Fuel was carried in the sponsons and pumped to header tanks in the wings, which in turn fed the engines. A tunnel through the wing gave the flight engineer access to all four engines in flight. These were right cyclone 14-cylinder air-cooled engines rated at 1,500 horsepower each. Returning to the subject of money, uh, it's interesting to recollect at this time my salary as a captain was £440 per annum plus £100 license pay, to which was added flying pay at the rate of 15 shillings an hour and 10 shillings for every test flight performed i could I could actually gross thirteen hundred pounds a year, but if unable to fly for any reason, I dropped to the basic four hundred and forty. This system of salary payment changed with the establishment of the British Airline Pilots Association, incidentally of which I was a founder member. and following the commencement
3: <laughs>
2: and following the commencement of transatlantic operations, I found myself in receipt of a salary of fourteen hundred a year as a senior captain first class, plus three hundred a year transatlantic service pay. Now that was seventeen hundred a year, which at that time was not bad. It was worth something, anyway. American readiness and the setbacks of the British aircraft, the British effort occasioned by the loss of Connemara and other problems, forced abandonment of the arrangement for simultaneous commencement of scheduled operations by Pan-American and Imperial. The result of this was that the Boeing, the Yankee Kipper, arrived in Southampton on the 28th of June 1939 under the command of Captain Harold Gray, who had led the American survey flights in 1937 and is today President of Pan-American he was accompanied by a crew of 11 and 17 passengers by this time Imperial Airways had created an Atlantic Division under the management of Captain Wilcoxon who had led the, led the survey flights in 1937 three crews had been selected and the order of operation decided uh, first to go would be myself with Captain Long First Officer Frost Radio Officer Costa and Radio Officer Wilcoxon second would be Captain Don Bennett Captain Tony Lorraine, First Officer Tommy Farnsworth, Radio Officer Martin and Radio Officer Cheeseman, and third, Captain Gordon Store, Captain Jimmy James, First Officer Bose, Radio Officer Hobbs and Radio Officer Brett. Uh, I mentioned those names because I'm sure some of them will ring a bell with some of you. Services would operate weekly in each direction and be numbered in sequence, starting with NAW1. For the first westbound flight and with NAE1 for the first eastbound. The timetable called for a departure from Southampton every Saturday afternoon and arrival in New York the following evening. Departure from New York was to be on Wednesday afternoon with a night stop in Montreal followed by an early start for Botwood, thence overnight to points arriving back at Southampton on Friday afternoon. Six elapsed days for a round trip compared with the 18 or 20 hours of today. Then the anxiously awaited date of commencement was announced, Saturday the 5th of August. Public interest mounted as newspapers and magazines reported on the preparations being made. Looking back over the headlines, I see, quote, Bubble to guide Atlantic pilots. This was a reference to the bubble sextant, of course. Another tells us that a special retractable transparent dome is fitted, which enables the navigator to take a bearing on any star in the heavens without leaning out of the aircraft. (laughs) (laughs) Yet another report says that under Captain Wilcoxon, I was compiling route maps and charts for the guidance of the Atlantic pilots. Captain Bennett was writing a 100-page route book to be used as a manual of instructions, and the captain's store was arranging accommodation aboard the aircraft for everybody and everything. Preparations kept us very busy and took a variety of forms, including practice in the manoeuvre of flight refuelling, which was intended to extend the still air range of the aircraft from about uh, 2,800 to 3,500 statute miles. Sir Alan Cobham had pioneered flight refuelling with such success that a company called Flight Refuelling Limited had been formed in 1936 in which he held 40% of the shares and Imperial Airways 60%. This fact illustrates the confidence which Imperial Airways, and therefore the British government, had at that time in the commercial attraction of flight refueling. Initially, we pilots found a number of things to criticize in the flight refueling procedures, not least of which was the dangerous close proximity of tanker and receiving aircraft at the time of making initial contact. The method employed required the tanker to fly below and behind the flying boat and endeavor to engage a weighted wire being trailed by the latter in a hook strapped to the leading edge of its port wing and attached to another wire. This could bring the aircraft as close as 150 feet from each other and in turbulent conditions the pilot of the receiving aircraft had nothing but an agonizing mental picture of what might be going on below and behind him. Improvements were effected all round and a new system of making contact devised. This required the tanker to fly to one side of the receiver where it could be seen. When in the correct position, it would fire a harpoon to which was attached a 300-weight cable. This was aimed to pass ahead of the cable being trailed by the flying boat and in swinging back to engage the grapnel at its end. The tanker would then assume an upper position and wind the flying boat's cable up, remove the weight, and attach a cable to the nozzle fixed to the end of the fuel hose wound on a drum in its belly. The tanker then lowered this hose, and as it did so, the operator on the flying boat would winch his cable back, thereby drawing the hose towards a cup in the stern. Finally, the nozzle would enter this cup, whereupon hydraulically operated rollers locked it tight against the seal. Fuel was then passed by gravity down the hose and into the flying boat's tanks. At the end of the operation, the flying boats would release the hydraulic rollers and allow the hose to swing away, taking the hauling line with it. In this way, about 850 gallons of fuel could be passed in a total time of 15 minutes between initial contact and final separation. Precautions against fire included flushing the system with nitrogen, before connecting up, and the release of metal bromide in the cup when withdrawing the nozzle. In addition, a weak link arrangement in the hauling line ensured that the bond between the tanker and the flying boat was broken at a point at least 20 feet away from the latter after refueling. For the Atlantic operation, 4 handly handily-paid harrows were converted into tankers, each with a capacity of 850 gallons. (coughs) two were taken by ship to Montreal (coughs) by then flight lieutenant Johnson for use at Newfoundland and the others were based at Rhinana under the command of Jeffrey Tyson the flight refueling, engine and other modifications to caribou were completed by the evening of August the 2nd there she is being launched uh, at Hyde near Southampton I gave it a short test flight early the next morning which was followed by a further 14-hour test flight at the insistence of the Air Ministry. All went well so that the whole of the next day, August the 4th, could be used for final inspections and servicing. The seagoing passenger tender at Calshaw had been chartered so that the VIPs could watch our takeoff from Southampton, at 5th, and I and my crew went aboard shortly before departure and were presented to the Postmaster General and other dignitaries. That was my crew, myself on the left, Captain Long, Vernon uh, Cross, uh, Captain Long was the navigator, First Officer Frost, co-pilot, Radio Officer Costa, and then Radio Officer Wilcoxon. They were all able to turn up at Shannon for the celebration there in September, except poor Wilcoxon, who died about ten years ago. And in case you meet people after 25 years, you know, that you haven't seen at that time, and they say, you haven't changed a bit. Have a look at the next one. Right. <laughs> uh, there's old man Foster on the left, retired a number of years. That's Captain Harold Gray, now President of Pan American, who flew opposite to me, you may remember. Then myself, Mr. Lamas, Prime Minister, uh, Captain Frost as he is now, and our navigator, ex-Captain Long, is the Reverend Samuel Long. Otherwise, he hasn't changed the physics. I
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Mailbags were ceremoniously handed over for the benefit of photographers, and with our 1,000 pounds of payload, we took off on time for points, where we arrived two and a half hours later. That is the actual takeoff taken from the tender, the cow shot. Here we were accorded a government reception, led by Mr. de Valera, and champagne flowed freely in a marquee specially erected on the quay. Two hours later, we took to the air again and for the benefit of the spectators, carried out flight refueling right over points. 800 gallons were passed in sixteen minutes, and half an hour after takeoff, Caribou crossed the town of Kilkey into the Atlantic at a height of 400 feet, which was gradually increased to a thousand. By agreement we <laughs> were doing all right, let me too.
3: <laughs>
2: by agreement amongst the countries concerned, Operating procedures had been evolved and put on paper under the title Transatlantic Air Service Safety Organization, TASO for short. Responsibility for Editorship reposed in Ireland, and amongst my souvenirs is a copy of the fourth and last edition published by the Irish Department of Industry and Commerce in March 1943, amended to October 1944. Responsibility for TASO was passed to PICAO, now ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, following its formation at the end of the war, and that is why ICAO's first divisional meeting, that for the North Atlantic, was held in Dublin in 1946. The material contained in the first edition of Tessa was rather sketchy and required only a few mimeograph sheets. It largely concerned itself with reporting and emergency procedures, communications arrangements, etc., Tasso also set out the meteorological organization which had been evolved. Such as it was, and it fell far short of what exists today, it was the product of hard work by and close collaboration between the Canadian Meteorological Service and its Irish counterpart during the preceding few years. The Irish Service during these its formative years <coughs> received valuable help and advice from the British Meteorological Office. Based on the weather forecast given to us at Poyne's, We estimated our average ground speed to Botwood would be 105 knots. The stage would therefore take us 16 and a half hours, a slow trip. In fact, it was a very slow trip indeed, occupying 19 hours and 35 minutes, boy to boy. At first, the weather was quite reasonable, and the surface of the sea could be seen intermittently from a 1,000 feet, enabling drift to be observed. This combined with reliable DF bearings from Rhinana Stern permitted accurate dead reckoning navigation. These conditions lasted for three hours, but for the following nine hours, no information capable of providing a reliable fix was obtainable due to the dense cloud and continuous heavy rain in which we found ourselves flying at a thousand feet. This height had been selected to minimize the adverse effect of the forecast head winds though so during the period we once struggled up to 10,000 feet in an endeavor to get a star position, but without success. It needs to be remembered that the only stations capable of giving us bearings were Rhinana astern and Gander ahead. Even they differed widely when we were in communication with both of them at the halfway mark. There were no radio stations which we could use north or south of the track, and accurate determination of ground speed was therefore dependent on astronomical sites. It was not until we'd been airborne about 14 and a half hours that we got a reliable fix by using the moon and radio bearings from Gander. As a result, we were shocked to discover that our average ground speed had only been 95 knots, an hour later it dropped below 90 knots. When dawn came, we found ourselves flying over dense fog at 1,500 feet and these conditions continued right up to the coast of Newfoundland. However, the sky was clear above, and some sights later confirmed our earlier fears that the headwinds had been much stronger than forecast. The fog cleared at the Newfoundland coast, and a little later we alighted at Bottle. Time in the air had been 19 hours and 25 minutes, giving an average ground speed of 89.5 knots. I should add, however, that we still had sufficient fuel for another five hours flying on arrival. At Botwood, I was met by flight Lieutenant Johnson, and we agreed arrangements for flight refueling on the return journey. Washing, shaving, breakfast, and refueling were disposed of in a couple of hours, and we set off for Montreal, where we arrived six and a half hours later. The flight was uneventful, and we landed on the St. Lawrence at Boucherville, a few miles below the city. Here we received a warm welcome, but as we were running late, managed to get underway again for New York in 45 minutes. Because I had not been in North America before, and the night landing in New York was inevitable, on account of our lateness, there was some talk of stopping the night in Montreal. However, the value to the senders of the many thousands of first air mail covers aboard the aircraft would be considerably diminished if they were not pranked with that day's date, so on we went. LaGuardia, with its marine terminal, was still under construction, so our destination was Port Washington, in Manhasset Bay, Long Island, the Pan-American terminal. We knew little or nothing about the U.S. system of airways using radio rangers. It was just as well because we pilots had no means of receiving an identifying signal from a range, from a range station. It was as well also that it proved to be a fine, clear night thus enabling us to follow the airway light beacons having first telephoned our ETA to New York. Though a very dark night, we located Port Washington with comparative ease and alighted by the help of a well-laid flare part using electrically lit floats after a flight of two and a half hours in Montreal. When one thinks of the huge consumption of electricity required to to aid night landings today, it's interesting to recollect that at that time Our modest needs were satisfied by a line of electric or kerosene lights intended not to illuminate the surface of the water but to indicate where it might be encountered. (laughs) Again, again we enjoyed a warm reception. The mail was (coughs) pushed away and we repaired to the Manhasset Bay Yacht Club for a very late and much-needed dinner. In fact, I don't remember ever having had any lunch. The time in the air since leaving Southampton had been 30 hours and 37 minutes and the elapsed time was 36 hours and 40 minutes an interesting contrast with times today we needed most of the following day Monday to rest up so a Wednesday departure only gave Tuesday to see the sights we did as much as we could the Rockefeller Center, uh, the World's Fair Hayden Planetarium and finally Dinner at the 21st of Wednesday, the 9th of August, saw us preparing for the return journey. Before leaving, I met Captain Reischendorfer, head of the U.S. Weather Bureau, an acquaintanceship which I enjoyed for several years until he became lost to sight in his mounting responsibilities. I mention that because at that time we were one of his first aviation customers because U.S. Airlines in those days uh, had their own meteorologist. Shortly before our arrival, reports have been appearing in newspapers of which the following is an example. I quote, In January 1939, three lives were lost when the flying boat Cavalier was forced to land in the sea between New York and Bermuda. The survivors were picked up by an American tanker after being ten hours in the water. Relatives of those lost are endeavouring to obtain substantial compensation and it is planned through their lawyers to attach the flying boat caribou immediately before its scheduled departure from Port Washington on its return trip to the United Kingdom. Presumably it is believed that the demand of compensation will be forthcoming so as to avoid embarrassment to the British government which would follow from their action. Unquote. Paul Boucher, Imperial Airways Manager in New York for many years, anticipated any action of this sort by persuading the local postmaster to produce the mails a couple of hours earlier than scheduled. His secret weapon was the knowledge that one could not attach a vehicle carrying the United States mail. Anyway, we left Port Washington without incident and flew to Montreal where we night stop. Rising at 4 a.m., we were on our way to Boswood two and a half hours later. Conditions were excellent until reaching Newfoundland, when frontal conditions were encountered. My log then reports, quote, After a short period of blind flying, the aircraft descended to 1,500 feet over Red Indian Pond, about 70 miles southwest of Portwood, and flew thereafter in rain and turbulent air conditions.
3: <coughs>
2: Good bearings from v- VOAK brought us into a safe alighting, unquote. I mentioned that because an hour before scheduled departure time, Botwood was closed in with low cloud at 500 to 1,000 feet and drizzling rain. The local hilltops were obscured in cloud, and a strong southwesterly wind off the land was causing severe turbulence. Being concerned by the danger to both of us involved in flight refueling, I telephoned Flight Lieutenant Johnson, who was a gander, and it was agreed to postpone our respective takeoffs for an hour. On reaching the takeoff area, the time agreed, I received a message from the shore to the effect that the tanker aircraft had been forced by weather to return to Gander, having first jettisoned the fuel intended for us, in order that he could reach a safe landing way. In his own words, Johnston said, "I was not concerned about getting to Botwood, which is only 40 miles away, nor had any qualms about meeting up with the flying boat and carrying out the operation." But, as I had no map and no radio, the flying boat would not be able to tell me where I was at the point of breaking contact and in consequence I had no hope under these conditions of getting back to Gander. In fairness to Johnson, it should be mentioned that Newfoundland had not been mapped at this time and the only thing available to him for inland navigation was a map produced by the local railway. (laughs) We were... We were already an hour behind schedule and any further attempt to contact the tanker would add considerably to the delay and give no guarantee of success. The estimated flight time to Poines was 11 hours and 15 minutes and since I had fuel already aboard sufficient for 20 hours I decided to carry on without the help of flight refueling in the hope of regaining schedule. This was a tremendous disappointment to Johnson who with his team had been waiting since early summer for this moment. However, he subsequently drew comfort from the fact that he performed successfully on all seven of the remaining eastbound flights through Bodwood that summer. On practically all occasions, he had to contend with the turbulent conditions prevalent in that area. On one of these, to use his own words once again, and I quote, The refuelling was done at treetop height, and Captain Storr, being the most considerate of captains, kept down at this level in order to keep me out of the clouds. It was the fastest time we ever achieved on either side of the Atlantic from the moment of initial contact to final separation It was 11 minutes during which we transferred 800 gallons. Unquote. Well, this may have been quite an achievement, but I don't think it would appeal to passengers had there been any. Uh, our flight time for points was exactly as forecast when a further flight of two hours brought us back to Southampton, where we alighted half an hour ahead of schedule. Our flying time for the homeward journey was 24 hours compared with the 30 and a, 30 and a half hours on the outward. A week later, Don Bennett and his crew took out NAW-2, and a week after that, Gordon Storr took NAW-3. Eight round trips and all were planned, and all were completed on schedule. The last arrived back in Southampton on September the 19th, by which time the effect of shortening days and rapidly falling temperatures were being felt in the Newfoundland area. Also, the outbreak of war was beginning to bring problems in its train. War also resulted in Cabot and Caribou being commandeered by the ARIA towards the end of the year and the secondment of Gordon Storr and Sammy Long to command them, accompanied by Frost and Bowes as co-pilots. There were other Imperial Airways staff in the crews together with a number of RAF personnel. Both aircraft were militarized by knocking out some of the windows and installing Vickers K guns. The crew were also armed with rifles and dummy guns sprouted from the flight refueling cups in their tails. The two aircraft operated as a special duties flight under the command of Captain Storr until the German invasion of Norway. Then on the night of May the 3rd, 1940, both took off from Southampton and flew by a devious route to Harstad, a town in Norway to the north of Narvik. They were loaded with technicians, some Norwegians, and a variety of equipment, all intended to facilitate the establishment of landing strips. From Harstad they, from Harstad they were ordered to Bodo, south of Narvik, and there you see them camouflaged and anchored off Bodo, where they arrived on May the 5th and commenced to discharge their loads. German Heinkel soon appeared and coming in low, attacked them on the water. They fought the attackers to the best of their ability with the modest armament at their disposal, but despite endeavours, both aircraft were ultimately destroyed and five crew members wounded including Gordon Storr and Bernard Frost. There you see one being consumed by fire. Despite continuous German air attacks, the wounded were excellently cared for by the Norwegian doctors and (coughs) nurses, so that a few weeks later, all were back in England, though not without some further adventures. During the winter of 1939-40, I had been assigned to a special task in the Belgian Congo, at the end of which I contracted a severe bout of malaria. During convalescence, I planned to visit my home in Dublin, and the Director General of BOAC, Leslie Runciman, A hearing of this asked me to come and see him. Imperial Airways had now become BOAC, and the chief executive was known as the director general. He suggested, that while in Dublin I might take soundings to ascertain neutral island's attitude towards resumed use of points. This I did, and on my return was able to report a favorable reaction. There followed an official request from the British government, and permission was given for, I quote, continuation of survey and experimental flights, unquote, through point. Two further flying boats were then prepared for resumption of the service, Clyde, originally intended for the U.S. Bermuda route, and Clare, ex-Australia, built for the Tasman Sea Service. This time it was intended to carry <coughs> passengers and to dispense with flight refueling. On August the 3rd, 1940, I left pooled in Clare, Captain Ted Rotherham as co-pilot, E.R.B. White uh, navigated together with radio officers Wilcoxon and Burgess. Fool and Dorset had become our wartime terminal in England, though the aircraft was still maintained at Hyde, Southampton. The passengers, the first to be carried in a British aircraft the Atlantic, were limited by payload considerations to three. <laughs> And they were accommodated in the aft cabin, which had been refurbished. They were Dick Ferry, founder, the late Dick Ferry, founder and head of Ferry Aviation, in the middle there. The Honorable Jeffrey Cunlet on the left, a Treasury official, and the well-known Colonel Wild Bill Donovan, one of President Roosevelt's advisors, just here on the right. Our permissible gross weight for takeoff had been increased to the previous year's advisory fuel weight of 53,000 pounds. This was our weight on the takeoff from Foynes, and my logbook says that it took 54 seconds against a nine-knot wind. It also reports that at climbing power the aircraft gained altitude satisfactorily, but that the true airspeed declined to 117 knots in cruise condition, and that the aircraft adopted a five-degree nose up attitude as it were stalling all the way. By the end of the journey, which in this case took 16 hours, the airspeed had built up to 130 knots. But I feel that in the initial stages, our engine outperformance would have been very poor, particularly as our operational ceiling at 53,000 pounds was only 8,000 feet. Fortunately, we had very little engine trouble. We followed the same route as in thirty-nine, but this time landed at the new LaGuardia airport in New York, uh, the first <coughs> foreign aircraft to do so. We navigated with such accuracy from Montreal that we broke cloud to our satisfaction right over the middle of the LaGuardia. Not to the satisfaction of the tower controller, however. We'd never heard of the tower controller before. Who had several aircraft in the circuit under his control, none of which was us.
3: <laughs> On arrival,
2: I was sent for by the airport commissioner, but instead of the expected words of welcome, was severely reprimanded. Uh, the fact was that our R.T. equipment uh, equipment was hopelessly inadequate, and in any case, no information had been available to us concerning LaGuardia prior to departure from England, nor en route. Otherwise, the welcome accorded to our camouflaged aircraft on arrival in the still neutral United States from warring Europe was big and warm. New York papers, newspapers, printed facsimile reproductions of pages from the London papers which we had brought over, and there seemed no doubt that the recommencement of scheduled operations provided a much needed boost at that time to British prestige in North America. Before leaving the airport after arrival, I was introduced to Mayor LaGuardia, who was there to lay the cornerstone of the Casey-Jones Institute of Aeronautics close by. He invited me to help him, and to this day, I never passed the building without remembering that it is sustained by a trial, full of of cement placed there by me. On our return flight, payload permitted six passengers, four of whom comprised the first American civilian pilots recruited for the ferrying of military aircraft in Britain. (coughs) This was so that trained RAF personnel would be, would not be tied up in such work. Instead, of these early ferry pilots were well paid, at that time, anyway, a thousand dollars a month tax free. In the course of a subsequent service, I took Sir Harold Balfour, Air Minister, on a mission to and from the United States. In the course, in the course of this, he arranged for the purchase by the British government of three of the Boeing triples <coughs> Which had been ordered by Pan-American and were under construction in Seattle. It was well he did, because once again we had to close down the service with the onset of winter, and before the next season arrived, Britain had no long-range aircraft left. Connemara had been destroyed before the outbreak of war, and Cabot with caribou had been lost in Norway. Clyde was to be lost in the storm at Lisbon early in forty one and later declared to crash without trace in the vicinity of Dakar. However, when we concluded Atlantic operations in 1940, we had the satisfaction of knowing that BOAC alone had re-established a weekly scheduled service on the North Atlantic route and attained that schedule at the end of the season except for a delay of one day in one instance. The three Boeing 314 flying boats were named Bristol, Berwick and Bangor. Bristol was the first to go into service when it left New York on the 22nd of May, 1941, and the other two followed soon after. With these three aircraft and five, occasionally six, crews, we maintained transatlantic services all the year round for the remainder of the war, as well as regular services between the UK and West Africa. In summer, we used the northern route already described. In winter, we operated eastbound via Bermuda, the Azores, Lisbon, and westbound went south-about by way of Bathurst in Gambia, Belém in Brazil, Trinidad, and Bermuda. Between each transatlantic operation, a round-trip was completed between Coins and Lagos via Lisbon and Bathurst, so that sometimes the aircraft were away from their maintenance base for 12 to 14 days at a time. They were wonderful aircraft, and their range capability was often demonstrated in the course of special <coughs> flights such as when I had the privilege of taking Prime Minister Churchill non-stop from Stranraer in Scotland to Washington, D.C. in 27 hours, a distance of 3,250 nautical miles. In fact, our only problem on that occasion was the Prime Minister himself, who grew bored by being held captive for so long. There was a swift change of scene when the war ended. Bombers and military transport aircraft had demonstrated the ability of land planes to carry substantial loads over long distances in almost any weather. More and more land planes appeared over the Atlantic, and soon the flying boat era was ended. The last scheduled flying boat service on the North Atlantic was operated by BOAC on the 7th of March, 1946. Flying boats lingered a little longer on the other trunk routes, but the last flying boat to be operated by BOAC, a short Solent, was withdrawn from the South African route on the 7th of November, 1950. Quickly, Poynes, Boswood, and Boucherville became but a memory. Take the case of Poynes. Imperial Airways had started there before the war with a staff of two, allowed to use an office in the railway station. One of them was the late Squadron leader Godsave still remembered by the slightly mutilated message which reached London following my first departure in Caribou, and it read, Caribou Airborne, 1800. God save Imperial (laughs) Airways. Before the war ended, the numbers at points had increased to such an extent that extensive accommodation had to be constructed at Bowlands Meadow outside the town. Three new piers were built at which to berth the flying boats. Extensive airport offices were added, <coughs> up went a control tower, work started on a new hotel, and excellent restaurant facilities were in, op- were in operation. Poyne's teamed with the people coming and going in the BOAC, Pan American, and the newer American export aircraft, and his resident population was steadily increased by the numbers needed to serve it as the most important aerial crossroads it had become. Now, having given you that picture of a boom town, I'll conclude by showing you another. This summer I revisited Poines and stood on the landing stage at which I had disembarked so many times from my flying boats. It was heartwarming to be instantly recognized by one of the older bystanders, and it was not long before I was together with old friends in Miss Corbett's public house. Not many, just Dan Corker and the customs officer, now over seventy for Newton, retired harbor pilot who used to ferry us to the shore, and of course Miss Corbett herself. It was a wonderful evening, but sad. The piers have gone, the railway's gone, the hotel is a sanatorium, Boland's Meadow, a holiday home for nuns. There's little local industry, and there are few people to be seen. As Miss Corbett said, we are all old here, there's nothing to hold the young. Yes, there I saw clear evidence that the era during which the flying boat reigned supreme in civil aviation is long over, but it was wonderful what it happened.
1: gentlemen, we've been privileged tonight to hear some of the greatest moments in British aviation told by one of its pioneers. It is customary in main lectures, named lectures, to have no discussion, and the branch committee have decided that this shall be, be custom this evening. Therefore, my pleasure to call on Mr. Borman to prepare the form of of thanks. Mr. President, Mr.
4: Branch President, ladies and gentlemen, On these rare occasions when we are honoured to have the main society lecture presented before our branch, particularly on such an occasion as tonight, when it is concomitant with the Short Brothers commemorative lecture, it is usual to choose some elderly, dignified person to propose a vote of thanks. Now, as most of you are well aware, I have little or no claim to dignity whatsoever. (laughs) Therefore, I can only conclude... That it is on the score of my aging years that I was deemed qualified to perform this very pleasant function tonight. And with this I have no quarrel whatsoever. For had I not been born when I was, I would have never had the opportunity of having met our lecturer, Captain Kelly Rogers, in the very early, exciting days of the development of the short empire flying boat and the transatlantic crossings on which he has so ably uh, dealt with this evening. Now I am sure you will all agree that it's been a most absorbing and at times very humorous lecture of the days when aircraft and route development were as fascinating and as exciting and romantic adventures as those carried out at the turn of the 15th century by John and Sebastian Cabot one of whom sailed westward from Bristol and discovered Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and the other to seek the northwestern passage. As you've heard from our lecturer, one of the empire boats was very aptly named Cabot after these famous explorers and I feel that history will do an injustice to the spirit of adventure shown by such men as Captain Kelly Rogers, Captain Wilcoxon and Captain Bennett if its annals do not Contain in some tangible form the names of these men, if only the name over Mrs. Somebody's pub at point. <laughs> we of the firm of Short Runs at Rochester contributed our share in these early adventures, and the names of Horace, Eustace, and Oswald Short, whom we honour this evening, flashed before our memories. As must also those which I will mention. We record the memory of. Um, Kelly Rogers to wit Sir Arthur Gouge John Lancaster Parker W.C. Jackson and Mr. C.P. Lipscomb the last name we are pleased to see yet still with this evening the periodical flight or maybe it was the aeroplane has described the days about which our lecturer has been speaking as the golden era of short runs and the empire boat and its derivatives as the aircraft which put British civil aviation on the world map in the 1930s. Now, if this repetition of these statements sounds like boasting, so be it. I am completely unashamed. My own part in the scheme of things in those days was that I had been responsible for the structural design of the boats and subsequently flew in every one on their test flights as chief. Test observer. In fact, if I remember right now, it's was the only test observer. And it was while I was on this work that I met such men as Kelly, Wilkie and Bennett. And I am very proud indeed of having been associated both with them and the boats themselves in those exciting days. And I know too, from looking around this room, that these sentiments go equally well for others here this evening who are also associated with these pioneering pilots and the Mayo Composite aircraft. We, in our old age, can only hope that the present and coming generation of young men engaged on design and testing, sitting in front of their rather soulless computers and their automatic flight recorders, will be able to look back, as we can, and as you've heard, Captain Kelly Rogers can, to the often humorous, Sometimes dangerous, but always very human experiences, which memories tucked away for us. So Kelly, uh, I'm sorry if I call you Kelly, but no, no disrespect intended. Kelly, My on behalf of, on behalf of everyone present here this evening, may I express our thanks for a most interesting lecture, but particularly from those of us who were closely associated with you and with the old boats. May I thank you for bringing into this lecture hall tonight the refreshing salty tang of the sea air to tickle our noses with nostalgic memories. We can quite understand the feelings you expressed in the closing part of your lecture when you revisited Foynes and stood on the old jetty. I've often had the same feelings myself when revisiting Rochester and looking across the medway from the London train as I've approached it. I see the old seaplane works factory which in its day produced some of the finest flying boats in the world. Now given over to the mundane manufacture of brown paper (laughs) bags. And I think, Ichabod, thy glory hath departed. And I echo your words, sir. It is sad, but it was wonderful while it lasted. On behalf of us all, very many thanks for your most interesting paper. I would ask you, ladies and gentlemen, to show your appreciation in our customary fashion. Mr. Chairman, will you permit me to break away somewhat from the protocol of the main Society Lecture, and for a few moments to revert to custom of the Belfast branch. It's always our pleasure to present to our speakers a little memento of their visit to us here. But, as tonight when our visitor hails from the south, and he's also a much bigger man than I <laughs> it is one with some extreme diffidence that I offer our usual gift of a Northern Irish tie.
3: Um, However, Kelly,
4: I hope that uh, if you can't wear it in Dublin, hanging in your wardrobe it will remind you of our thanks as we shake hands across the border. Thank you very much. I'd
2: like to assure you that I not only am very pleased to receive this, but I'd be more pleased still to, to wear it because I sometimes remind some of the younger people. When I was born, It was the whole of Ireland.